Join me as we skip to the end of a book. Not the ending of the story, but further in the back, almost by the back cover. The Acknowledgements. I've always been fascinated by the acknowledgements and find myself asking questions I wish I had the answers to. Are the people they thanked still in their lives? Do they regret not including someone? What's the meaning behind this inside joke or story? Well, now I finally get the answers to my questions. In this podcast, I'll talk to the authors and explore the acknowledgements. So flip to the back of the book with me and let's start there. Okay, well, welcome to this episode of The Acknowledgements. I am thrilled to be talking with Liz Alterman. Liz? Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here today. Of course. And you are the author of The Perfect Neighborhood, which I have right here with your signature in it. Right. Thank you. And, and a few other books as well. So I actually just finished this book. So I'm so excited to talk about it. And I would love for you to give a brief premise of the book. Tell everyone what it's about. Okay, thank you. And thanks for reading it. Well, I feel like the tagline says it all. The tagline is, think you know your neighbors, think again. And so what it's about is this close-knit sort of upscale community. You live in this lovely, well-manicured, well-maintained area, and you sort of get this false sense of security. And so I wanted to really touch on that. And then also just the way I think moms can feel a lot of guilt, especially working moms, and you sort of blame yourself or you second guess. And really, Really, some things are just completely beyond your control. So that's a, about it in a nutshell. Thank you, Liz. And and it's before I even jump into the acknowledgments, I was so curious about a few things. And one was your so your you live in New Jersey now. Was that the motivation of, of making New Jersey the setting? Well, I think I've lived in a few areas of New Jersey and they, I sort of made almost a composite fictional town for this. And I know people always say, write what you know. And so of course there are other states with suburbs like New Jersey. I I could have said it in Connecticut or something, but I just sort of felt like I would go with what felt true and what I, what I felt like I had a background in. So it was fun. It is funny too, because I've lived in my home now for about 23 years and (laughs) I grew up in a town about let's say 11 miles away, which is very similar to the town I'm in now. And then I've worked in two other places where I still keep in touch with people. And it seems like everyone I talk to thinks it's based on that town. So if I run into someone in Princeton, they're like, you said it here. If I see someone in Westfield, they say, you said it here, but it's really just a composite. But it was fun to sort of take, nothing is really thankfully based on any real situations that I've encountered, but just sort of characters that I've met along the way sort of provided a bit of back background for the characters in this novel. Yeah. And that's, so it's interesting you say that about everyone thinking it's set where they are, right? That speaks to the commonality between all of these quaint small towns. Exactly. And the other thing I'm curious about, because as I was reading it, I thought of a few things, right? From a mother's perspective of a missing child, of that mom guilt type of thing. I, there were a few few pages on that as well. Where did, what inspired you to make that part of the story, that whole mom guilt 
expect? Oh, thank you for asking. Well, I think what I really wanted to think about is how I think moms put so much pressure on themselves, especially working moms. So I, I wanted to sort of examine that, that Rachel, Billy's mom, feels this tremendous sense of guilt, whereas her husband never hooks into that. He doesn't think about that at all. And, and I think really, if she had been in another community, she might not have felt that way. But it was just that here are all of these other moms who are waiting at the curb, who are planning these spectacular playdates after school, and she can't participate in that. And that really weighs on her. And then especially when her son goes missing, she it's almost like the darkest, worst thoughts she's had about herself or herself as a parent sort of rise to the surface. And also the other thing which comes up a lot in book clubs and just people in reviews will say a child who's almost six never should be walking home alone. And when I was workshopping this book, it was funny. I took a writing class and a mom who lives in South Orange was saying, is this even legal? Can the child walk home? And so I sort of also wanted to touch on the idea of parents who sort of the free range versus the helicopter. And in this book, it's really Rachel's husband who convinces her to go against her gut and let her son walk home with a friend. And he, it's a constant battle between them. Like you're coddling him. He needs to be independent. And so I also wanted to focus on that maternal instinct that like that voice that's inside you. And sometimes you, you doubt it. Like, am I being overprotective? Am I sort of smothering this kid rather than helping him become independent and blossom? And so I think that's a real challenge for Rachel. And I wanted to, to explore that. I'm glad you did because I do feel like I even personally related to some of those sentiments that the characters in the book were feeling. So I'm glad it went down that road and that you explored that a bit. Oh, good. Thank you. And now I'd love to dig into your acknowledgments. Sure. And I know you read the acknowledgments personally um, when you're reading a book, right? I do. Well, I, I read them for multiple reasons. But when I saw the premise of your podcast, I was so excited because sometimes I'll tell people I read the acknowledgments first and they act like I'm crazy. Why would you care? But I feel like for me, it's been like a multifold thing. First, I loved looking to see who an author thinks if there's an agent there? And if it's in my genre, could I query that agent? If I was in a position to be looking for an agent, do they thank the editor? And sometimes depending on the author, you'll either hear that they felt like those insightful edits shaped the novel or, or it might just be like a very sort of generic thanks. Or sometimes people leave out their agent, which I think is equally interesting. Like maybe this wasn't the best relationship. <laughs> Not like I'm looking for more gossip, like as if I'm one of the characters <laughs> in my own book. But I always, I love to see that. I love to see when people, how they thank their families, like if they get creative in there. And I love to see when people thank their pets, because I have a cat who I said, I had a, I have a cat now. And I had a cat when I wrote my young adult book. And unfortunately he passed away. But both of these cats really almost like sit on my lap as if to say, you're not getting up until this chapter is done. <laughs> love it. And you did thank Bubbles, Bubbles for doing yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, I love, I'm obsessed with her. I, she's the, she just is such a sweet, sweet kitty. And I think she gets it that writing is, can be a lonely thing. So she really sticks by my side and sort of sits on top of me. I mean, it can be tough to touch the laptop, but she, <laughs> she makes sure I'm staying still and not getting snacks or coffee or wandering away. I love that. 
I love it. I remember reading once about a tip to when you're just getting stuck to just sit in front of your computer and say, you cannot get up for an hour and event and you can't like start Googling things or open up your phone and all of that. And I loved it because it really then does force you to think about what you're working on that project. And I just feel like Bubbles is here for you (laughs) in making sure that happens. She is. She's very good. Cause it's true. I think, I think I was reading, I don't know if you've ever read Danny Shapiro's still writing where she will talk about in the pre-internet days, you would maybe be at a typewriter. And if you were blocked, you would just look out your window. And now it's like we open a window and next thing we're scrolling through Twitter or social media, any site. And next thing, 30 minutes have gone by and you're no closer to coming up with that good idea because you've just distracted yourself. So I think it's true. If you can stay away from those distractions, that's key to making progress. Yes. And now looking at your acknowledgements. So I have a whole bunch of questions for you. I'm excited. So first, I'd love to hear about your mom, Margaret. And what I loved is you said your first and favorite storyteller. Yes. So tell me about that. Oh, thank you. Well, my mom, I would say, is really instrumental in fostering a love of reading. One of my earliest memories is of her sitting on the couch with me, and we'd read every afternoon. And she still is. She's still an avid reader. She goes to the library all the time, and she and her friends are always swapping books. So she's a real inspiration. And she's also a character, I would say. She can tell a story. Now she's 80, so she takes a lot of, like, I guess you would say, sidebars or detours in her story. And we kind of circle back to the main plot, but she is very funny. There's not like a detail that she misses or she's got a lot of questions about people. And she was in the hospital in, I guess, winter. And I went to visit her and she had the life story of every nurse, doctor, how many kids they have, when they got married, where they live, are they buying a new house? And so I feel like she, her kind of telling those stories and getting all the details has stuck with me. And as an author, I think, okay, what else should I, what other details could I throw in here to make these characters really come alive? So she's sort of an inspiration in multiple ways. I love that. And it it feels like Margaret needs her own podcast and she's (laughs) talking to people and getting all of their life stories. She really does. It's really funny. One time she, I took her with me. I had been going to get my hair cut and highlighted by the same woman for years and years. And I did not know much about her other than that her name was Margot. And then one time my mom came with me and my mom has pretty short hair. And so she in just, so I was with Margo, let's say for 90 minutes, every few months getting this cut and color. My mom's with Margo for 15 minutes. And when we're back on the street, she says, can you believe that Margo was so brave to end her engagement and move to the city alone from Buffalo? Love that. I would love for you to also tell me about your dear friends, Celeste and Chris, whose keen eyes and unwavering support mean the world to me. Yes. Oh, thank you. Well, they are, I'm very fortunate to have have met them when I, so I have three boys and my friend Celeste has two boys and my friend Chris also has two boys. So when we get together, we're like, it's just all boy mom talk, but they have been early readers for me and will tell me like what works, maybe what doesn't, if they, if they've found something in the plot that could be improved. And they're both like my mom, excellent typo finders. They, but it's funny too, as you share a draft and maybe it changes, I send it in a word doc and when they 
they pull it up. So they'll say, okay, go to page 16. There's an extra it. But on my screen, it's maybe page 18. So then I have to pester them and say, okay, could you give me the whole sentence? I'm driving myself crazy. I can't find it. And so they're so patient and kind with me and they're so supportive. I really, I'm so grateful to have them in my life. And along with them, you also talk about your cousin, Kim, for being your constant cheerleader and pro bono publicist. And this is part of love, who charms friends and strangers into buying my words. Tell me about Kim. She, my cousin is, she's hysterical and she has this like wonderful, big personality and she's incredibly generous with like her time and her talents and she'll do anything for anyone. And so I think people are almost like ready to return the favor. So if she says to you, my cousin wrote a book, they're like, I'll buy three copies. And so it's really, it's really funny. So she has a book club and she is always out there like recommending, okay, we have to read my cousin's book. And I'm like, don't you know, why don't you read it first? See if you like it. You don't have to recommend it. I don't want people to resent you or feel like this is like a nepotism book club. (laughs) But She's really funny. And then she'll say like, okay, I have a friend. She's a teacher. Would you like to go speak at her high school about being a writer and maybe sell some books? So she's always thinking of different, different ways. And then she'll be like, how can we get this into the hands of one of these morning show people? Do we know someone who knows Reese Witherspoon? (laughs) (laughs) But if like, if anyone's going to know that she might, so yeah, she's so supportive. It's really, and she's an avid reader too. So I know I can always go to her and say like, what, what's a great book for the beach or what's a great historical fiction thing that I'd like to read. And she's always got a suggestion. So I really appreciate that. It sounds like you have such a great support system through your writing. I'm very, very fortunate. And I think writers just pretty much everyone that I've met, many people, through social media are have just been so generous with their time, which I appreciate. I think people maybe in their careers have experienced like how hard or how isolating it can be when you're writing. And it seems like everybody that I've encountered, I've been so fortunate, has been really supportive or like, what can I do to help you or cheering you on or, oh, all right, I'll share that post for you. And I was very fortunate with this book. My publisher, Crooked Lane, went out and got a lot of wonderful blurbs and asked authors. And and it is, I mean, for authors, your time is really your money. It's like your most precious commodity because that's when you're creating. So to ask somebody, hey, can you set aside your own writing to read 300 pages? Like that's a big ask. And then come up with a review. And especially it's hard to, I know myself, if I'm asked to blurb, it's hard to come up with something that feels really original, not to say like, I was on the edge of my seat. I couldn't put it down, but it's, it's hard. So I really am grateful for everyone's time and just generosity of spirit. And to that point, like thinking when you, when you are asked to do those blurbs, trying to come from like an authentic place too seems like so important. So that's interesting. I haven't thought about that aspect of being a writer and being asked to do so. I'm just really grateful for for the writers who've supported me along the way. And when thinking about your acknowledgements, the the process for putting them together, making sure you have everybody, thinking later, maybe you forgot someone. What is that whole process like for you? Especially, and I I like asking you this question because you do love the acknowledgements so much. So I'd love to hear about that whole process. Oh, thank you. I think for me, it's very daunting. I think that you 
you come into it thinking, okay, well, I'm a writer. I just wrote this whole book. This should be simple, but it's really, I feel like it's just hard. Like there is no one you want to forget. And then I sort of think in this book, in the acknowledgements, I just went with thank you as the start of everything, because I felt like it would be very difficult to weave with my young adult novel. He'll be waiting. I tried to be a little bit more creative in the acknowledgements, but here, I think also there's almost a case of when people say the shoemaker's children have no shoes. It's like, by the time you get to the acknowledgements, I'm like, I've got no more words. I've got no more creativity. I just want to make sure I don't exclude anybody. And, and I just want to put this book to bed and see it get published and out in the world. So I think it's hard. I think the same way when people ask you to write a bio, whether you're a writer or not, you think, okay, who knows me better than myself? And yet it's so hard to write your own bio, I think. <laughs> anyway, So struggle with the acknowledgements. I mean, I feel like it's a dream come true to be in a position to be able to write that and to thank people. But when you sit down to do it, you're like, <gasps> and then who do you thank first? And who do you thank last? And I could read about how other authors structure that all day long because it's it's so interesting. Yes. And everybody does it differently. So that's such an interesting part for me as well. Absolutely. Um, I would love to hear more about you as an author. So I came across so many articles that you wrote on all kinds of different topics. One that I was like just perusing, it was like 16 surprising ways to injure yourself when you're over 40. And I was like laughing, crying, oh, reading one was like leaning over to like look at a bulldog in a stroller. It was something along those lines. I was cracking up. So I'd love to hear about this. You had a whole list of articles you've written. As you said, you've written this YA book. And then I see that poster behind you, which I'd love to hear about your memoir as well. So um, give it all to me. I'd love to hear. Thank you for asking. Well, I guess I've been freelance writing for Ooh, probably over a decade. I had been an energy reporter, which I always joke, if you would like to see people's eyes glaze over, tell them you write about natural gas or electricity for a living. Because when people would say, oh, what are you? I'd say, oh, I'm a writer or a reporter. And people immediately think something a lot more interesting than energy. But then when I had my children, I took some time off and I stayed home and I tried my hand at freelancing and just seeing what I could do. So I just wrote about anything that would be assigned to me. And in my free time, I would try to come up with essays or humorless. And so that's where that comes from. And I think what happened, what inspired me on the ways to injure yourself over 40 was I had a phone call one afternoon with my husband's aunt and I love her. She's super sweet. We hadn't talked in a while. So I had, for anyone who can't see me, I had my sort of elbow up almost level with my shoulder as I held the phone and I must not have moved for the entire 40 minutes. And when I went to put my arm down, I could barely turn my neck and I just, thought, how have I been injured just on a simple phone call? And that's what kind of got me starting, started thinking about all the other ways that I've injured myself. And then, so I guess up until about 2014, I had just been writing articles, essays, humorless, things like that. And of course, more technical things to, to get a paycheck. And then I was laid off from my job, I guess in January of 2014. And Unfortunately, six weeks earlier, my husband had also been laid off from his job where he'd been for 18 years and he was blindsided. He 
there had been some cuts at his company, but he had sort of survived all of those rounds. And so he went to work that morning having no clue. And I guess they let 50 people go. And just how today corporate America can be so cruel. He's sitting there and he starts seeing a phone ring across the newsroom. And then that person would come back with a box, pack up their belongings and go. And so phones, as each phone would ring, a person would come back, pack up and leave. And then of course his number was up. <laughs> just a, a few calls down the line. So he came home and then I was really panicked because I knew that my own job was in trouble. I had been a local editor or an editor for a local, like hyper-local news site. And I knew the handwriting was on the wall. I even had a manager who was like, okay, off the record, if anybody needs to go see a dentist or an eye doctor, go now, don't wait. You don't have to tell me, just go. So we knew that it was imminent. And so, but still when it happens, it's quite a shock. So my husband and I, we were home together. And I always joke, I guess I had read somewhere where people say for better or worse, but not for lunch, like you're just not meant to spend that much time together <laughs> day in and day out in your marriage. So my husband was initially he was relieved, he was excited to have this sort of break. And it was almost like a kick in the pants for him. He was thinking of it as like, a, here's my fresh start. Here's where I'll begin again. But he didn't want to get right back to it. He wanted to take some time. And next thing I know, he's joining the YMCA. He's buying a Nutribullet. He's like whipping up smoothies at all hours and he's buying organic produce. And I'm like, wait, neither one of us has a paycheck. Maybe like <laughs> slow down on, on your organic pomegranates. You don't need that. But so I guess what I was looking for at that time was somebody talking about unemployment and talking about like the, how it impacts your self-esteem and just the fear associated with not knowing like, when am I going to be hired again? And I was sending out resumes and getting rejected. And my husband, Rich, was just taking his time. He wasn't really ready to get back there. So I thought, I guess I had done a freelance assignment with the co-founder of a writing school. And at the end, I said, what's your most popular class? And she said, memoir writing. We have a workshop and everyone feels they've got a story to tell. And it just stayed with me. And I started to think like, what story would I want to tell? And what story would I want to read if I were to do this and commit to it? And so that's when I decided to really dig in and write about our mutual unemployment. And I have to say it was, I found it very cathartic to put down those thoughts. And I tried to put a humorous spin on it, like the thing that I had hoped to read during that tough period, like you're waking up at two in the morning, and you're just wandering around, like going from watching Netflix to eating everything in your fridge, looking for more ice cream. So it's, it, I mean, it definitely looks at the dark side of unemployment, but I tried to put more of a humorous look at like just the crazy things that we were going through at that time. What was it like when your husband read it? What did he think? Well, it's funny because he is sort of like a technical writer and editor. I had him reviewing it each step of the way. And I also, because he lived through it, I wanted him to really fact check it almost and, and feel like, was this an honest, accurate portrayal? And so I think he wasn't, he's, ve I'm very fortunate. He's very, very supportive. And so he was fine with it, but he was, I think he also could see, it gave him, I guess, a new perspective of kind of what I was feeling. Cause I guess when he was in the 
thick of it. And I would be like, go apply for jobs. You, you have to like, just throw out resumes. It, Cause he would always almost talk himself out of it. Like there'd be one bullet point that he would feel he wasn't qualified for. And then he'd be like, I'm just not gonna, I'm like, you have to, we have three kids in a mortgage. You have to try. So I think it was good. And it's funny, the reaction that I've gotten, like a lot of men are like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. How could you write these things about him? Oh, if I ever meet him, I'd like to buy him a beer. But I would just like to say like, travel back in time and live with him while he's buying like five pounds of carrots and not sending any resumes. And let me know how you feel that. <laughs> But I've also, him being a writer, I've said to him, if he would ever like to write a tell-all of what it's like to live with me as I try to write these books, like I say, go for it. I would support him because it, uh, on his end now, it's not pretty, I was saying too. So I, I'm picturing in my head, it's like Sad Sack, the sequel, and it's like his whole perspective of that time. I would love that. That would be a lot of fun, <laughs> right? He would probably be like, this lady keeps nagging me and I'm just, I'm just trying to improve myself. And <laughs> I love it. I do appreciate that he had perhaps the healthiest procrastination there ever was. He did. <laughs> so yeah, that's he, was, fantastic. he was catching up on sleep because before he used to catch a train that left our town at about 540 in the morning. So he was usually falling asleep and rightly so by about 9pm. So he was catching up on his rest. He was and it was funny too, because with these smoothies, like he was making them. And I think my kids initially thought he was making like shamrock shakes. And and so he'd give them this green sludge and next thing they were like, whoa, no, this is, this is not mint and sugar. This is <laughs> spinach and kale and God knows what else. This is not the Mickey D's version. Exactly. <laughs> no, not what they were accustomed to. And so, so it's so interesting, right? Your, your writing journey has been in so many different places then writing these articles and essays. You've got a memoir, a YA book. You've got the perfect neighborhood now. So what's next? Oh, thank you for asking. I do. I have a manuscript that's out on submission right now, but unfortunately it, it hasn't found a home. And so to take my mind off it, I'm working on a new book that would also sort of fall in, I guess, the domestic suspense category. So I'm I'm slowly creeping toward the end of that. And I, I always give myself these deadlines and then I don't quite hit them. So <laughs> I was hoping to be done by mid-July, but we'll see. I'm hoping for a burst of inspiration, but I, I seem to be writing more slowly as I get older. I don't know if that, if that happens to other people, but that's what I'm telling myself. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. Or maybe it, like, there's so many different reasons. I think as I've talked to authors about where they get stuck and then how they get unstuck. So as you said, I think some of, sometimes it comes from just a burst of inspiration from somewhere. Yes. I'm hoping. <laughs> <laughs> and thinking about this, whole genre as we're talking about, right? With domestic suspense, you had this, this, of course, underlying story to the perfect neighborhood, which was the loss of children in a few different ways. So where did that topic come from for you? Well, I guess between my first and second son, I had three miscarriages. And so I really wanted to look at how that can impact someone, especially when you're living in a town. I remember 
my oldest son was maybe probably two and we went to the park and it was spring and it just, so I had probably at that point had two pregnancy losses. And I just felt like all of these moms that I had not seen over the winter were in this park and pregnant. And it just, of course, I'm happy for them and happy. It doesn't just because one person, like that's not the only baby that you're going to get. Like just because they were having a baby didn't mean that I wasn't going to have a baby, but it was just very hard to think like, am I, is this going to work out? Like, will this have a happy ending for me? And then I think there are those people who don't know what you're going through. So I can remember going places and there would be people who would say, is he going to be an only child? Aren't you going to have a sibling for him? And it's just so devastating to hear that. And, and, and people, unless you say to them, well, I lost my last three pregnancies and then put them. And sometimes I almost wanted to do that to almost make them think not to do that to someone else because you just don't know what anybody else is going through. And so I really wanted to touch on that struggle and how even if you think if your partner is supportive, I still think there's that thing just that it's something that you do sort of go through alone where you can put a lot of pressure on yourself and wonder, was it something I did? Was there something I didn't do? Is there almost like a vitamin, a supplement, a hormone? Like, should I have done something? And so that I really wanted to sort of explore that in this novel. Yeah. And that's, that was such an interesting part for me too, right? Because every chapter goes back and forth between a different character's perspective. And that was such a common theme of making assumptions about someone else's life, about what they're going through, their reactions to something, and not assume, not thinking that there could be another perspective or another truth to it. So that definitely came out through this. Oh, good. Good. Yes. I definitely think that whole concept of you never really know what someone else is facing or going through. And so maybe to try to extend them some grace. And I like to think that by the end of the story, some of the characters got that message. Yes. Well, Liz, it was so nice chatting with you. I hope you find the inspiration to finish up that book you're working on. And I'm looking forward to checking out some of your other work as well. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for getting curious about the acknowledgments. And remember to read from cover to cover. Check out the acknowledgments on Facebook, Instagram, or theacknowledgments.com. There you'll find more information on the books and authors that I talk about here.